So we're looking in Zechariah chapter 4. And we read, And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of sleep. And the idea seems to be that suddenly his eyes are open. Something that was not clear has suddenly become clear. And as I said, I believe it's not too much of a stretch to link this into what Paul says in Ephesians, because of what will follow in a moment, what we'll see the angel reveal to Zechariah. And we see in Ephesians chapter 3, particularly this statement that God has unveiled now, revealed a mystery that was once hidden. And let me read verse 10. It says, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Now, a lot of people read that, and I've heard people preach on this and teach this and commentators that have said that it goes on. It's saying that that God's wisdom is shown through the church, that the church are responsible for declaring God's wisdom. Let me read that again. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers, unto, so it's it's to the angels, the archangels, the principalities and powers in heaven, in heavenly places, might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And they say, well, it's the church's job to reveal to these angelic beings and these powers and principalities God's wisdom. It's our job, aren't we? Privileged to be able to go and, no, 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 I don't believe they're saying that at all. In the context, I believe what it is saying is that God's wisdom is revealed to the principalities of the powers in the heavenly places by the existence of the church. That which God had hidden, he's now revealed, and the angels now go, I get it. I see what God was doing. There was a wonderful song, and we've done it a number of times. We sung it by a, a Christian singer-songwriter. Uh, used to be known as Leslie Phillips. Uh, she changed her name or became known by her second name, Sam Phillips. Um, but the song was called... Uh, will they love him? And it was a song that was written from an angel's perspective before Jesus came to earth at the first coming, at the birth in Bethlehem. And, and it's kind of, you know, the, the song starts, the lyrics are, what's in the father's mind? Why would he let him go? And if I can't go with him, there's one thing I must know. Will they love him? Love him like I do. And it's just looking from an angel's perspective that the Messiah, the one they'd worshipped in heaven, was being allowed to come to earth and to be born as a baby. And you've got to think from an angel's perspective, they were thinking, what is God doing? Letting God manifest in the flesh come to this earth, to be treated as he was treated, to be ultimately crucified by his own creation. And no doubt the angels were a little perplexed about what God was doing. Well, this verse tells us that they were perplexed, but God's wisdom is made known to the angels, the the principalities and powers in heavenly places, by the very existence of the church. God reveals what the church was about. That through the church, he was going to bring together the Jews and the Gentiles all into one. And ultimately, in eternity, in the New Jerusalem, we find the Jews, the Gentiles together in one body. We have those 12 gates. We have the 12 foundation stones representing the Jews, the Gentiles, the apostles, the 12 tribes of Israel. So let's go back to Zechariah again. So chapter 4, verse 1, it speaks about this wakening out of sleep. And I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch, as I say, to start to see in this that God is revealing something. And it says, 
He said unto me, this is the angel speaking to Zechariah, what seest thou? And I said, I've looked, and behold, a candlestick of all, uh, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof. Now you'll see why I've just made that connection with the church in a second, but before we go any further, let's go back to Exodus chapter 37. We're flicking through various scriptures this morning, but it's worth it. Exodus chapter 37 is that portion in the book of Exodus that if you're reading through the Bible in a year, and I encourage you to do that, you get to it and you go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's all the details about how the tabernacle was built and everything else. If you study it, it's fascinating. If you read it, it's hard work. All right, but it really is incredible as you get into it. So in Exodus 37, picking up verse 17. And he made, it says the candlestick. It's just, it's an unfortunate translation, by the way. It should be lampstand. Candles, candles weren't around at that point. It's a lampstand. It's something that bears light. Okay, but so whatever your translation says, it should be a lampstand. Uh, that's the idea. Um, so he made the lampstand of pure gold of beaten work. All right, so this is the menorah. You're familiar with this seven-branched candlestick that you see in various references to Israel and so on, and particularly with the tabernacle and so on. So this is the, the exactly what Zechariah is seeing in his vision. And there's a couple of interesting things to note from this. It's all made of pure gold. What does pure gold mean? Well, it means it's been refined, doesn't it? If it's pure... It's been refined. You heat gold up, you get it to the kind of melting point, all the dross comes to the surface, and then you take the dross off. And how does a, an artisan know when the gold is pure? Well, it's when they look in it and they can see their own reflection. I'm sure you're ahead of me, you can see where this is going, how gold works in our lives. Often we need to be heated up, and the dross comes to the surface, and that's removed. And then God, when he can see his reflection, knows that we're in that place, we're purified. And it goes on, it talks about and his shaft and his branch and his bowls, his knobs and his flowers, all of the same manner. So the whole thing's made of gold. And, so, and six branches, six is an interesting number, isn't it? Six is always the number of man in the Bible. Man was created on the sixth day. And many, many other references we could go on and look at that. Six also has this implication of not quite complete. Of course, 666, we, rep- we, we recognize as that number given to this individual who will come. There's always some way in, reg- in regards to man. But six branches going out of the size thereof, three branches on the candlestick uh, out of the one side and three uh, branches of the candlestick out of the other side thereof. So you've got this center shaft, as it were, and then three branches either side. But you've got that center one. And it goes on, it talks about the detail of it and how it was made and everything else. But verse 22 tells us something really interesting. He says their knobs and their branches were all of the same, and it was of one beaten work of pure gold. This was something that was hammered into shape. It was made of pure gold, and it was hammered into shape. Now, go back to Zechariah again. I'm just going to read what it says. Verse 2, and he said unto me, what seest thou? And I said, look, I've looked to behold a candlestick of all gold with a bowl on the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes, the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. Now, let's go to the book of Revelation, because everything in Scripture is explained in Scripture, so we don't have to do any guesswork. In the book of Revelation, John sees this incredible vision of Jesus in the opening 
chapter. And as part of that, we see this incredible uh, vision, if you like, this uh, uh, picture that John gets. Now, uh, let's just pick up verse, um, where should we go first? Let's go for verse 12. It says, John speaking, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the foot and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. Okay, so clearly it's a vision of Jesus right in the midst of this lampstand. Now when we jump down to verse 20, we read this. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which thou sawest are the seven churches. So all along, this menorah, which is intrinsically a very Jewish thing in terms of our mindset, it was speaking of the church. We, we see it there. The lampstands were to bear light. The church is to bear light. Jesus is in the midst of the church. We go on and we find that Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches. Those seven churches are representative of the whole of the church age. Starting at the beginning, the church of Ephesus, all the way through to that final apostate church, the church of Laodicea. It's a fascinating study. But clearly the statement here is that the seven lampstands which thou saw are the seven churches. So jumping back to Zechariah now, Zechariah, as we've already just talked about something being hidden and being that's now revealed, clearly the church fits that profile. And then we're now introduced to this lampstand, this menorah effectively, which we are told in Revelation is representative of the church. Verse 3 goes on, and then this is the second part of the, the vision he's having. And the two olive trees, now we recognize or we should recognize that instantly as a reference to the nation of Israel. Israel is often described in that way. We've already seen that in Zechariah. The two olive trees by it. Now notice one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. All right, so just bear with me. So if we've got the menorah here representing the church and we've got the olive trees one side and the other, it's as if we've got Israel either side sandwiching the church. Now from a time point of view, of course God dealt with the nation of Israel. But then Luke 19 tells us that because Israel's eyes were blinded, God's plan and clock for Israel was paused. And then we have this time where God is dealing with the church. But when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, God will resume his work with Israel. So just purely on that basis, this seems to fit a model that we started to see developing here. Verse 4, So I answered and spoke unto the angel, and he talked with me, saying, or the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? <laughs> Thankfully, Zechariah says, No, my Lord, I don't know what they are. Please explain. Then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. And we all, I'm sure, recognize this scripture. Saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
What is that in regard to? It's a scripture that we can apply many different ways because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so on. So we recognize that that is a principle, that God works not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. But I would suggest that is a statement that speaks of what God has done through and with the church. Now, Zechariah was facing this problem in the nation. There was this apathy, fear. They hadn't rebuilt the temple at this point. But Zerubbabel, Haggai, are stirring, trying to stir people's hearts up. And there was this trying to move forward. And here we have this statement of what God is going to do. And the the word that comes to Zerubbabel is a word of comfort. It's not going to be by your efforts. It's not going to be by your ingenuity or your wisdom or your strength. It's going to be by God's spirit that this is built. How was the church built? By God's spirit. It's not by man's ingenuity or ability or anything else. Verse 7 goes on. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain. Now this must have been a great encouragement to Zerubbabel. The problems he was looking at and facing at that moment were significant. And God says, the problems are going to dissipate. They're going to disappear. The bigger problem here of what was going to happen to the Jewish nation now that they returned from captivity, the world was very antagonistic even at that time toward Israel. How was God going to bring about this change that had already been spoken of in the the previous visions? The Lord was going to choose again Jerusalem. Remember, we've seen that already. He was going to come and dwell in Zion. How are we going to get from Zechariah's time to that time? This is the mountain that, that is laying before Zechariah. And the Lord says that mountain is going to be removed. That it's going to be removed not by might, not by power, but by God's spirit. And then he says, Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof, with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. You know, the church is built entirely on grace. The whole basis of the Christian church is grace, God's grace. It's God's work. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, but God. All what God did. And God has kind of brought that forth. And just as Jesus was the stone rejected of the builders, effectively he's kind of been brought forth. It's that word again, that Hebrew word, that semek, the branch, and so on. And Jesus has become the foundation or the capstone of the church. And we're all joined together in the church. Moreover, verse 8, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. So in the local context of this, clearly God is saying to Zerubbabel, the job will get done. God's going to give you the strength to accomplish this. For who has despised the day of small things? Bear in mind where they were. They were 50,000 or so who had just returned from Babylon. 19 years before this point, just a small fraction of the nation had returned. And yet God is saying, don't despise these days. Don't look at the numbers. Don't go, but we don't have enough to fulfill the work in hand. We don't have the resources to do this. God is saying, 
Don't despise this day of small beginnings. It shall be accomplished. God will do what he said he's going to do in the nation of Israel. For who despise the day of small things, verse 10, for they shall rejoice and shall see the planet in the hand of Zerubbabel. That's, again, a plumb line. He speaks of building. When you have a plumb line, you're trying to build something. So there's another allusion here to Jerusalem being rebuilt. In the hand of Zerubbabel, with those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. It's speaking of the seven spirits of God. This comes up time and time again. It speaks in Isaiah uh, elsewhere of these seven spirits of God. Just talking of the Holy Spirit that we know. Verse 11. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? Either side of what I'm suggesting to you this morning is idiomatic or representative of the church, we have these olive trees, which I've already suggested is representative of, of Israel. We go on. The question is asked in verse 12, And I asked again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So these two olive branches that are depicted here are representative of two individuals, it would seem, two anointed ones that are going to stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Now, for this, we need to do a little study in the book of Revelation. Because we find exactly this idea is picked up. In fact, in the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, there are some 800 allusions to the Old Testament. So almost two in every verse, two references looking back to things in the Old Testament. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand the Old Testament. Revelation 11, we get this. And I will give power unto my two witnesses. Okay, And we're told, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth. These individuals are two individuals that are yet to come. They will appear after the church is taken out of here. The, the light of the church, the witness of the church will be re- removed. But these will carry on bearing that light. I believe in the first three and a half years of the tribulation time that is to come. And they're going to be supernaturally empowered. God says, I will give power to my two witnesses. And they shall prophesy 1,203 score days. That's 1,260 days or three and a half years. 360 days per year, which is that biblical measure for a year. For many reasons we've discussed before and we will do it other times in the future. Verse 4 says, and these are the two, and this, is, this is the direct quote now. These are the two, these are the two olive trees. So we don't have to guess now what Zechariah is talking about because in Revelation we're given the full picture. These two individuals that are going to come, that God is going to supernaturally empower, we're told are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks or lampstands again standing before the God of the whole earth. It's exactly what we see in Zechariah. There's a clear link between these two passages. They're two individuals. There's definitely a Jewishness about them, the fact that they're referred to as these olive trees. And they stand before God, the God of the whole earth. In other words, they're, they're emissaries or they're missionaries 
ambassadors, witnesses for God. Olive trees are mentioned seven times in Scripture. Each time it's linked with faithfulness. Again, chapter 1, we saw a revelation that candlesticks was representative of the church being a witness. Now the church has gone, these two witnesses, as it were, pick up the baton of these things. To understand a little bit more of these two witnesses, and this is just a little bit of a, a fun study. This isn't doctrine, but it does seem to be quite provocative when we look at the details. Mark chapter 9, we read this. Picking up verse uh, 2, and after six days, Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John and leads them up to a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can whiten them. And there appeared unto them Elijah with Moses. Interesting. These two individuals, Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make Three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Uh, Peter just didn't know quite what to say. You know, you've been in one of those moments, you don't know quite what to say, and you say something and you think, probably shouldn't have said that. It's kind of what Peter does here. For he wished not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. I'm going to, that's actually, I'm reading this from Mark 9. I'm actually going to read to you from Luke 9, because they're both, they're parallel, parallel uh, passages. But there's something that Luke tells us that's very significant in regard to this whole event. We told that Moses and Elijah talked with them, verse 30 of, of Luke 9. But verse 31 of Luke 9, it says, Who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The purpose of Moses and Elijah appearing was to have a conversation with Jesus about what was about to take place in Jerusalem, i.e. Jesus' death. Why was it that God engineered the circumstances to allow Moses and Elijah to appear with Jesus to have this conversation when clearly what was being discussed was Jesus' death? Why was it necessary? Well, there's a clue in the number. We've seen already there's the biblical numbers have significance. Two is the number of witness, all the way through Scripture. Number of witness. God has given us the law and the prophets. There's two witnesses. We have, with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. Before anything could be uh, made official in Israel, you had to have two witnesses, or two or more. So we see that clear reference to witness being the idea. These in Revelation are referred to as two witnesses. So we have these two men, Moses and Elijah, that appear on the Mount of Transfiguration, clothed in this glory, this wider power, is from what we're told. Now, in Luke 24, verse 4, just as an aside, this is quite interesting, we know that Moses and Elijah were called and specifically discussed the events of Jesus' death. And then we read in Luke 24, verse 4, and it came to pass as they were much perplexed there about, this is on the morning of the resurrection, behold, Dr. Luke says, two men stood by them in shining garments. So again, we have two men clothed in seemingly white apparel, shining garments. I would suggest to you it's the same two men that have previously been called to discuss this very event. Why did God want two people standing there on the morning of the resurrection? I would suggest it was to be witnesses. Who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus? 
The Roman guards didn't. They froze in fear when the angel rolled the stone away. The disciples weren't there at that point. Who witnessed the resurrection? Well, I would suggest to you that God sent these two men to be there. The reason for the transfiguration, I believe, was not just for the conversation that Jesus has with his father at that moment, but so that these two witnesses can be called to be there to testify to that event. Just turn a few pages over into the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, we're all familiar that Jesus returns to heaven. And the disciples are standing there, they're looking up in the clouds as Jesus is taken up from them. And verse 10 says, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men. This is Dr. Luke again. Luke was a doctor, a medical doctor. He understood the difference between a man and some angelic being. Two men stood there by them in white apparel. So we have these two men appear on the Mount of Transfiguration. We have two men appear at the grave on the morning of the resurrection. And we have two men appear at the Transfiguration. And then in the book of Revelation, we have two men. Now, we're not told specifically in Revelation that they're Moses and Elijah. But we are given some really interesting details. We just turn to Revelation chapter 11 and just read some of the details that I think helps us identify who they are. It was told, verse 3, I'll give power to my two witnesses. They shall prophesy 1,203 score days, clothed in sackcloth. And then verse 5 says, and if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth. That's exactly what Elijah did in his ministry. If you remember, they were coming to arrest him. This band of 50 came, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and they're burnt up. And another group of 50 come, and fire comes down from heaven and burns them up. And another comes, and the captain says, please spare our lives. This individual here in Revelation, one of these witnesses, has that power. Verse 6 goes on, it says, these have the power to shut up heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. How long do they prophesy? Three and a half years. That's interesting. How long does James tell us? And we're told in First Kings chapter 17, how long was it Elijah pronounced a drought on the land? Three and a half years. Interesting. So the miracles that are being done in Revelation are a direct copy of things that Elijah did in his ministry. But the other thing that's noticed, and they have power of the waters to turn them to blood. Who did that? Moses. And to smite the earth with all plagues. Who did that? Moses. As often as they were. It goes on and tells us in Revelation that these two eventually are killed by Antichrist. The world holds a great party. They're pleased that these two people that were speaking of God and righteousness and judgment, they're finally out of the way and the world celebrates. But not for long, because after three and a half days, they just come back to life again. And the world stops partying and stands there in awe. And suddenly these two witnesses are called up to heaven. That's what Revelation 11 tells us. Read the chapter, you'll see the detail. It's It's incredible. So this is what's coming. So how does this link in with what we're reading in Zechariah? Let me go back to Zechariah. Well, I think he's speaking of the time of Israel as it was. We have the church age, we have then the church removed, and then we have on the other side, just as we had the menorah representing the church, and then these candlesticks either end of that, how God's dealing with Israel was put on hold. Church has been brought in. After the church is gone, God will again deal with the nation of Israel. And that the two witnesses representing or Moses and Elijah, I believe they will be, literally come back to this earth, representing the law and the prophets. Those two great witnesses that God has given to convict man. The law convicts man in our conscience, in our hearts. And prophecy is there to convict our minds. Intellectually, if anybody has any intellectual doubts about Christianity, about the, the authority of the Bible, then just look at the prophecy. It's overwhelming. We'll talk more about some of the incredible 
details we have in prophecy some other time, but it really is. It's mathematically provable that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, so that's chapter 4. Let's just take through chapter 5. It's not a long chapter, just 11 verses, but it's a really fascinating thing that will come out of this. Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is 20 cubits, and the breadth thereof 10 cubits. Then he said unto me, This is the curse. So this is representing a curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. So this is something that a curse that is encompassing the whole earth. For everyone that steals shall be cut off, as on this side according to it, and everyone that swears shall be cut off on that side according to it. And I will bring it forth, says the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief and into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house, and it shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. This is a strange vision. We just have to deduce from what we can see here, but clearly this is something that is global. It affects the whole earth. It's speaking of those who have committed crimes, that have done something against God's ordinances, being called to account. It talks about a day of reckoning coming, effectively. Verse 5 says, Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goes forth. Now these seem to be directly linked, these two visions. To verse 5, he carries straight on. And the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, oh, Sorry, lift up thine eyes now and see what is this that goes forth. Verse 6, And I said, What is it? And he said, It is an ephah, that's a measure of weight, that goes forth. And he said, Moreover, this is the resemblance through all the earth. It seems to be linked to what we've just seen. This idea of a curse is affecting the whole earth. It's speaking of those that are detached from the ordinances, the rules, the judgments of God in their own hearts and minds, and God bringing them to account. And then we get this this bigger part of the vision now from verse 7. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, it's like a lid, you see, or this, this, this thing in a second. And this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ether. Very strange kind of picture. Imagine kind of like a big cauldron, if you like, with a big heavy lid on the top of it. And then as it's opened up, this, this woman, it's, again, it's like a revealing, an unveiling of something. This woman is sat there in the midst of an ether. And ether is, again, as a unit of measure. It was used for trade. The idea is is of commerce being involved in this. And in the midst of this commerce, of this world trade or so on, we have this woman that's sitting there. It doesn't imply that this woman's uncomfortable. It implies that this woman is sitting on this, sitting over this. And he said, this is wickedness. And he cast into the midst of the ether. And he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. Then lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women. And the wind was in their wings, for they had the wings like the wings of a stalk. And they lifted up the ether between earth and heaven. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, whether do these bear the ether? Where are they? They're picking this thing up and they're taking it somewhere. And the question Zechariah says is, where? Where are they taking this, this woman that is representing wickedness, that's linked to this curse that's upon the whole earth? Where is this being taken? 
Verse 11 tells us, And he said unto me to build it a house in the land of Shinar. And it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Now, if the rest of this hasn't made a lot of sense, this now starts to really give us some clarity. Where is Shinar? Where's the land of Shinar? It's what you and I would today consider the land of Iraq. It's where the Tower of Babel was built. The Tower of Babel was built on the plain of Shinar. So let's just do a little bit of deduction. This woman that's representing wickedness, that seems to be connected with the curses upon the whole earth, is taken and removed to this area for all intents and purposes of Babylon. But the interesting thing is there that she is placed there upon her own base. It's where she came from. So let's just go the other way. This woman started in Babylon, this wickedness that somehow has spread throughout the whole earth. At some point in the future, it's going to be removed back there. Once again, we turn to the book of Revelation. You are familiar, no doubt, in Revelation 17 and 18, we have a fascinating picture painted of this entity, this immoral woman. Let me just read a part of chapter 17. It came, well, then came one of the seven angels with the seven vials and talked to me, saying, Come here that I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. Again, speaking of the whole earth. Wickedness covering the whole earth. Very similar ideas being used. With whom the kings of the earth... So it's not the kings of the earth, but with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. They've indulged in improper relationships. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit. Once again, you see the connection. This woman was sitting in the midst of the ephraim, in the midst of commerce. The kings have been trading with this woman in Revelation. Uh, this woman sits uh, upon a scarlet Colored beast, full of names of blasphemy. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a cup, a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her head was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And then we go on and we're given a lot of details about this woman and the relationship she's had with the kings of the earth and so on. Now, a lot of scholars, a lot of commentators will tell you that this is the Catholic Church. And they'll make a very good case for that. Dave Hunt a fantastic Bible commentator and scholar, now home with the Lord, wrote probably one of the best books on this subject, which is called A Woman Rides the Beast. It is really worth getting and reading if you want to understand this. And I agree with 99.999% of everything Dave Hunt says in that book, but there's one point I disagree with, because he makes a claim that he believes that this woman is the Catholic Church. This woman is drunk with the blood of masters. Martyrs. She's clothed with all these things. The wealth of the Catholic Church is inestimable. I'm going to come back to that point in a second. I want to just mention something else, though. It amazes me how many Bible commentators read this, verse 5 particularly, and they'll talk about Mystery Babylon. Now, my English is not brilliant, as some of you know full well, but I can recognize a comma when I see a comma. 
And that's not just the English translation here. The statement is not mystery Babylon. It is mystery Babylon the Great. What you'll hear by a lot of people is that chapter 17 speaks about mystery Babylon as some spiritual thing. And chapter 18 speaks maybe about a literal fulfillment in some way or another. And so they'll talk about a mystery Babylon and a literal Babylon in whatever ways they they apply. It's not the case. First of all, the whole statement at the beginning of chapter 17 is come and see the judgment. We don't see that in chapter 17. The judgment doesn't come until chapter 18. Chapter 17 and 18 are one unit. Bear in mind there were no chapter breaks in the original. So what we're seeing here is this woman, this entity, just as we're seeing in Zechariah, clearly linked with Babylon, just as the one in Zechariah, wickedness started. And just from a historical perspective, we know from the time of Nimrod, Babylon was the source of idolatry and immorality, and it spread throughout the world. Another book that really is worth getting and reading, it's not an easy read, but it is fascinating, is a book called The Two Babylons by Reverend Alexander Hislop. It's an old book, a hundred and whatever years old now. But Alexander Hislop does a fantastic job of documenting all his sources and everything else, clearly linking the Roman Catholic Church and the practices with what was started in Babylon. There is no question there's a link here. But, you know, it's not just the Catholic Church because every false religion had its roots in Babylon. That was where collectively mankind decided they wanted to build a world government that was devoid of God. They didn't want God involved. It's interesting that the European Union, Union, the building in Strasbourg, is built intentionally to look like the Tower of Babel, at least from a painting uh, that was done of it. Okay, so let's try and tie these threads together. Revelation 17 is speaking about mystery. Again, remember what I've said about mysteries. All the way through the New Testament, this idea of mysteries are something that were once hidden are now revealed. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Notice that Babylon is the mother. She's the source of all these abominations that are spread throughout all the religions of the world. So, okay, if that's the case, how do we link this? Is it linked, indeed, with the Catholic Church? And I say, yes, it is. And this is the point that I disagree with some of the commentators that say this is the Catholic Church. No, no, Babylon is a separate thing. The spirit of Babylon has been there from the time of Nimrod, back in Genesis chapter 10. It's this false vine that has been planted to try and draw people away from the truth. Jesus said, I am the true vine. But this vine of the earth is kind of worked its way, it's grown all around the earth, trying to pull people and keep people away from God. The key is where we're told in verse 4 of Revelation 17, and people seem to miss this little subtle detail that makes all the difference in the world. And the woman was arrayed in, clothed in. Let me come back to this, just one comment. Remember in Revelation 12, we we get another woman, that's clearly representative of the nation of Israel. It's very clear from the context. But the woman is not the nation of Israel. We're told that the woman, which seems to be the seed that came down all the way from Eve, all the way down through the Old Testament, that woman was clothed in the sun, the moon, and the twelve stars. That line that starts with Eve in the Garden of Eden, the promise of the Messiah, is clothed with the nation. Why do we wear clothing? Well, for a number of reasons, but one of them is protection. 
One of the reasons we wear clothing is to protect us. Why is this woman clothed with Israel? So to ensure that the messianic line, that the seed would come all the way down for the Messiah to be born. And God chose Abraham's family, clothed the seed of the woman with Abraham's family, with the nation of Israel, to ensure that the Messiah would come. So just as in Revelation 12, the woman is not strictly speaking Israel, but is clothed with Israel. So here, this wicked woman that's being portrayed to us is arrayed in, clothed in, the colors of the Vatican. It seems that God has allowed this wicked system to be effectively embraced by, enshrouded by, and clothed by the Vatican, the Church of Rome, which of course has great ties with Islam and with all sorts of other religions. If you're a Muslim, according to the Catholic Church, then you get to go to heaven. If you're a Protestant, there's still, I believe, a hundred anathemas pronounced against us. You're really worrying too much. So, what are we seeing? In Zechariah, we're told that this wickedness, this woman, this, this entity that started in Babylon, and we could do bigger detailed studies and talk about Semiramis and some of these things, and it's fascinating when you dig into all of that and you uncover more of the history. But this wickedness that started in Babylon, that spread into false religions that have filled the earth, that have been, that will be ultimately brought back and tied back together by the Catholic Church, will eventually be removed from where they currently are back to its base in Babylon. And this is a, a strange thing to suggest because there's no idea, no real um, uh, fulfillment of prophecy that we see on the horizon to suggest that the Vatican would uproot from Rome and move to Babylon. And yet this implies that that is exactly what will happen. That somehow we will get to a one-world church, it will move from the Vatican, from Rome, back to its roots in Babylon. And you've only got to read uh, Isaiah uh, 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50, 51, Revelation 17 18. They all speak about the destruction of Babylon, but it has not yet happened. Just going to just show you just a couple of things very quickly. So yeah, go those those scriptures, Jeremiah 50, 51, Isaiah 13, 14. They all do with the literal destruction of Babylon, but it's not taken place throughout the centuries, throughout the ages. Even when Cyrus took over Babylon. It wasn't destroyed. Alexander the Great made it his capital. I believe he died there. If you look at it today, the Tower of Babel or Babylon was where it was located. I'm just zooming in. I'm just using Google Earth. You can do this yourself at home on your computers. Okay, you see the river Euphrates running down there by the side. You've got Babylon, the city. You've got the Tower of Babel or the remains of it. We're pretty confident that is the exact location. Saddam Hussein was in the uh, process of rebuilding Babylon, which is interesting in itself. And they had a a big uh, state room there that was used for various uh, affairs of state and so on. The palace of Nebuchadnezzar is kind of partially being reconstructed. Okay, and obviously you see Babel uh, there down the bottom. And it's uh, even if you look on um, Google Earth, there's a pin there that says the Tower of Babel. So a lot of people have uh, done the research and are pretty convinced this is the right location. But you notice that just the, the... Left there, you've got factories and civilization in this area. Bear in mind, Babylon was 15 miles wide, or 15 miles square. It was a poor, poor copy of what is going to come with the New Jerusalem, by the way, which will be 1,500 miles square. 
But 15 miles on each side was Babylon. So well within this kind of area. But there's factories of civilization. There's, there's life there today. Babylon was never destroyed. When you read those passages that we looked at, Isaiah 13, 14, Revela- uh, Jeremiah 50, 51, Revelation 17, 18, they speak of complete destruction. Uh, you, you know the quote from Revelation 18, that fallen, fallen is Babylon. It's going to be in one day. And nobody's going to dwell there after it's destroyed. That has not happened yet. Again, you look at it, you can zoom in, you can see lots of life. Just if you look from that bridge that you can see highlighted at the bottom of the screen, all the way up to Babylon, it's 4.1 miles. Okay, to actually, or to Babel, as it were. All right, well, ancient Babylon was again 50 miles. So this is, the whole area has still not been destroyed. The prophecies have not been completed according to what the Bible says will happen when Babylon is destroyed. What's my point? Well, Every prophecy in Scripture that should have come true has come true. These ones have not yet happened, but Revelation speaks of that time when Babylon will be destroyed. It will be this place of false religion. I believe all the religions of the world will be drawn together in one. And we're seeing it right now, are we not? With everything that's going on in the world, this idea of tolerance, everything will be brought together. And eventually, with some leading hand by the Catholic Church, this false religious system will end up rerouting itself in the area of Babylon, and ultimately it will be destroyed, completely destroyed. And again, Revelation 18, 17, 18, talk about that. It will be during the, th- or the end of the th- first three and a half years of the tribulation. That will be when this judgment comes upon. The Revelation 17, 18 terminates at the three and a half year point, because after that, the world religion will be Effectively, Satan worship. It will be Antichrist that will demand everybody worship him for the last three and a half years. We'll do more studies on these things as time allows in future. But just to give you then the brief summary of what we've looked at today in these visions. So the first one, it seems to be speaking about the future of Israel, but the church, of what's going to come, of the two witnesses that are coming. Again, preparing the world for the Messiah to return, preparing the world for when Israel will once again dwell in their land, that land that God has chosen. And of course, God has revealed the church to us. And then, as part of all of these things going on, also this false religious system that started in Babylon will ultimately move back to Babylon where it will finally be judged. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, some of these things are quite overwhelming when we sit and look at them, when we try to comprehend, Father, where we are now and what is to happen between now and the events that we've been looking at this morning taking place. But, Father, give us understanding from your word. May your spirit lead us and teach us. We thank you that you have given us these visions and prophecies, the things that Zechariah read or heard and saw in his vision that had explained to him by the angel. We can look at it, we can study with the benefit of the New Testament now. And Lord, we just thank you for all of these things. Father, we thank you for the church, for this mystery that was hidden. Thank you, Lord, that the church, just as the lampstand, is made out of one solid piece. We are one body. And just as the lampstand was molded and beaten into shape, so the church grows through the trials that we go through. But thank you, too, that the lampstand was to bear or to have oil placed within it and it was to bear light. And just as we are to bear light through the working of your Holy Spirit, and Lord, as you say in your word to Zechariah, so you say to us that all of these things 
And that all the problems and challenges we may face in our own lives, it's all not by might, not by power, but by your Spirit. May we grow in grace, walking with your Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.